The Rural Health Voice, Episode 49, The Future of Rural Health in Virginia. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What's going on at the Virginia Department of Health to make improvements in our rural communities? Dr. Norm Oliver, State Health Commissioner with the Virginia Department of Health, joined me to discuss the Virginia State Rural Health Plan. So welcome, Dr. Oliver. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, let's do a little background first. How did you first become interested in public health? Well, I I trained as a family physician, uh, worked in rural Alaska for a while, uh, came to Virginia uh, and joined the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Virginia and uh, was there for some 20 years. The last 11 years of that, or eight, eight to 10 years of that, actually, I was uh, chair of the department and we did a lot of work with our clinics to ensure that they did reach out to not just the people who showed up in our clinics, but our whole panel of patients. And we became interested in, say, for example, not just dealing with the patients with diabetes who came to the clinic, but to all the patients who were on our patient panel who had diabetes. And in order to reach out to them, we had to take a sort of community and population health kind of approach. And that got me very interested in doing that work. And I decided that I wanted to do it not just for the population that was uh, associated with our clinics, but with um, the whole population in the Commonwealth and um, joined the Virginia Department of Health as the Deputy Commissioner for Population Health back in 2017. And you're the state health commissioner for the Virginia Department of Health. So aside from like the fancy job description, what exactly does the state health commissioner do? Uh, As the head of the agency, the Virginia Department of Health, I lead a team of people who are involved in all aspects of public health. So we do everything from ensuring that uh, the sanitation works are uh, operating properly and our water is clean, no lead in the water, uh, ensuring that there's no bacteria in our shellfish beds, uh, looking at uh, restaurants and ensuring that the restaurants are serving not only good tasting, nutritious food, but uh, food that uh, is free of any kind of disease causing um, um, you know, uh, organisms uh, to um, working around uh, chronic disease, diabetes, heart disease, uh, stroke, hypertension, trying to help develop prevention programs uh, throughout the state to um, uh, keep people from developing these uh, chronic diseases. Uh, And of course, we are very involved with dealing with outbreaks of communicable diseases. Um, That's bread and butter for us, uh, sexually transmitted uh, illnesses and um, the the, uh, emerging communicable diseases in the past, like Ebola, um, Zika, things like that. And of course, uh, we have been heavily uh, involved 
uh, and leading the um, response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's a wide range of things. We have uh, over 4,000 employees across the Commonwealth. Um, and we have a number of uh, offices that deal with uh, all the sorts of things that I just uh, related, as well as 35 health districts um, <clears throat> across the uh, uh, state. And um, my leadership team is in charge of coordinating, organizing, and leading all of that. And my job is to um, pull that whole team together and um, together we develop our um, strategies, metrics for ensuring that we're doing the best job we can to protect the health and well-being of all the residents in the Commonwealth. Well, we certainly appreciated your time and effort in joining us today as part of the Rural Health Voice Conference, and you gave your presentation a little while ago. And in that presentation, you noted that you feel it's important that the State Office of Rural Health be located within the umbrella of the Office of Health Equity. But tell us more about the Office of Health Equity itself. The Office of Health Equity, in addition to dealing with um, um, rural health, is charged with helping our agency uh, look at all of our programs from the perspective of whether or not we're, those programs are addressing the most vulnerable uh, populations in the uh, in the Commonwealth. So that would include um, rural populations, uh, but it also includes um, uh, communities of uh, African-American, uh, Latinx, uh, other uh, minority communities who face um, increased uh, uh, hardships and disparities and chronic disease, and as well as, as we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, communicable diseases. Um, so it, it's important that when we are looking at things like um, campaigning against um, uh, diabetes and trying to develop prevention programs around that, that we recognize that it has, um, you know, a, a much larger impact, say, in the African-American or Latinx communities. And we need to ensure that our programs really um, speak to that and target those communities. Uh, and our Office of Health Equity is there to help us to, um, to do just that. They run some um, programs of their own um, around um, uh, multicultural um, education, uh, they are involved with uh, faith leaders uh, in communities of color around the uh, Commonwealth uh, who are very active in our uh, prevention programs around um, <clears throat> uh, chronic disease. Uh, so it's a program called Partners in Prayer and Prevention. Uh, and been, they were initially formed around um, helping to uh, develop prevention programs um, to prevent cardiovascular disease, but they have been involved in all the other work that we do in, in public health as well. Um, and our um, Office of Health Equity, in terms of the uh, current um, response to the COVID-19 pandemic, is, is leading um, the Health Equity Work Group, which is um, part of the whole of government response that we're, we've launched against COVID-19. And that health equity work group is a broad uh, coalition really of um, 
couple hundred um, people who uh, do the same sort of thing uh, within the context of our COVID-19 response. So the Office of Health, Health Equity does a lot of really important work for the um, agency and, and, and in that way also for the uh, entire population. And one of the more recent projects, of course, is working on the development of the Virginia State Rural Health Plan. And you note in your presentations that the community conversations that were held as part of that plan process were very helpful in identifying needs at the community level. Is there any sort of post-COVID plan to continue them in more areas of the state or maybe return to communities for follow-up? Right now, we don't have specific plans for that, but I th think it's safe to say that we definitely want to continue this initiative of going out into uh, rural communities around the Commonwealth and hearing from uh, people who live in those communities about what they consider to be their uh, major uh, concerns, health concerns, and concerns in, in health in a broad sense, right? I'm not talking about uh, disease-specific uh, issues, although there will be those issues as well. But whatever uh, is top of mind in those communities uh, regarding what's um, most important and has the biggest uh, impact on their uh, health and well-being, um, we want to hear what uh, those communities have to say on that so that we can design programs that really address their um, real concerns. So yes, we'll do something. I can't tell you exactly what it is. We don't have a specific plan right now, but we do want to follow up on those community conversations. Sure. And as part of that process, uh, once you finalize the state rural health plan, how is that shared and distributed to various stakeholders? Who does it go to? What do they do with it? Um, we would, um, well, the short answer is right away we want to get it out as broadly as possible so it would be on our website we would send it out to uh, stakeholders who've been involved with us in things like the community conversations uh, through the uh, faith uh, community to faith leaders in um, rural communities around the state um, the uh, activists in uh, rural uh, health organizations, uh, academic uh, researchers who are involved in uh, looking at uh, conditions in uh, rural communities, uh, service organizations like you know, the United Way and others who have been very involved in providing social services in rural communities. And in that way, uh, sort of give back to them what they've been able to give to us to help shape that state rural health um, plan. And then the idea, of course, is that this is a health improvement plan. So we would want to work with those same partners in um, uh, implementing programs that will uh, measurably improve the uh, health and well-being of the rural population in Virginia. And you mentioned researchers. The Virginia Rural Health Association has a number of members who work at academic research institutions. How can researchers collaborate with VDH to address disparities? Um, VDH has a lot of uh, data on um, health conditions in the state, including health conditions in rural uh, areas. And I think that's a 
important way in which we can we can collaborate with our um, academic partners by um, being a source of uh, really good data, and they can take that data and analyze it, and um, based on those analyses, make uh, recommendations and suggestions on how we can improve the health uh, of people in, in rural uh, Virginia. So that they they should really just give us a buzz and see what we can do as far as providing them the data that they need to carry out their research. Sure. And I had a very specific question on this. One of our uh, uh, conference participants wanted to know, in terms of working with VDH, and you had been talking about telemedicine, are there ways that researchers can work with VDH to develop and evaluate ways to make sure that we have equitable access to telemedicine throughout or Virginia? Um, yes, I, I would suggest if they're, if they're interested in this in terms of rural health, they can contact the um, State Office of Rural Health, uh, which is housed in our Office of Health Equity, and um, raise this idea and see um, about working uh, on such a project. In looking more at telemedicine, you had noted that there was $18 million that had recently been allocated for broadband infrastructure. And I know that sounds like a lot of money, but running fiber and setting up towers is very expensive. Do you know how Virginia is doing in terms of achieving 100% coverage? I, I think, as you noted in um, asking the question, uh, there's um, while we're very thankful for that 18 million, there's a lot more work that needs to be done uh, to in ensure that uh, broadband coverage really extends uh, throughout all of uh, rural uh, Virginia. Um, and even in urban areas, actually, there, there's a lot of disparities in the um, extent to which uh, broadband is available to some of our uh, lower income communities, uh, African-American communities, Latinx communities. And it's especially true, I believe, in rural uh, Virginia. So um, my hope is that in the coming uh, General Assembly, that even more money will be devoted uh, to this and that we'll be able to make bigger strides um, to uh, get broadband to rural, rural Virginia. Yeah. And and you mentioned the affordability piece, because, of course, infrastructure is only one part of that. Um, aside from money, are there other things that can be done to make the Internet affordable for some of our more vulnerable populations? Well, we'll see what can happen uh, from the techno technology point of view. I, I think that uh, to the extent that um, our um, um, telephone companies uh, are uh, able to advance uh, to, say, uh, 5G, for example, that that then provides another opportunity for um, people in rural communities to get access to uh, the Internet. Uh, so that would be another way that I would see some expansion happening there. But then again, that, it, it, it still gets back to the infrastructure. you got to get these uh, big um, companies like Verizon to... Uh, get more towers and everything uh, out to the uh, rural communities. And of course, the internet infrastructure being absolutely essential for telehealth. Um, 
do we know what's the most common type of telehealth visits? Are there, you know, specialties out there that post pandemic, we should really encourage those to be used, you know, even once we can go back to face to face? There's been a lot of work done in telepsychiatry and um, behavioral health counseling that's been done um, via uh, telehealth. Um, I know in Southwest Virginia that's been done for a while. Uh, the pandemic has actually greatly increased the emotional and psychological distress that many of us are feeling, and uh, we're seeing that in, in the uh, number of people who are seeking these sort of services. So uh, I believe that's going to be something that will continue beyond uh, the pandemic and we'll want um, to uh, ensure that people can get access to those kinds of services via telehealth. Um, dermatology has been a good one for that. With um, there, I know that uh, in Southwest Virginia, we've had the Health Department has worked in conjunction with specialists at UVA Medical Center around uh, hepatitis C uh, treatment um, and um, you know, identifying people who had uh, hepatitis C, uh, assessing how, um, how bad their disease was, developing a treatment program, all utilizing uh, some consultation via telehealth with uh, specialists at uh, UVA. Um, so the, those sorts of things, consultations with specialists so that primary care providers, um, nurse practitioners, family physicians, and others uh, will can treat people in um, the rural area and still be able to provide them with some specialized services. Yeah, but looking specifically at behavioral health, do we feel, you know, telehealth, no telehealth, are there enough behavioral health specialists out there to serve the population regardless of where they live? No. The short answer is a, it's a hard no. Um, we need to um, really do something about the workforce uh, in behavioral health. There's just not enough um, people who are uh, trained in behavioral health. Um, and uh, we, and that's particularly true in rural areas. Um, I think we need more primary care providers. There's, there's a need for more uh, general surgeons. Um, there's a need for more obstetrical uh, care in rural areas. Um, just to name a few. Those are things that come to mind off the top of my head uh, of areas where we need to um, vastly increase the workforce to serve um, rural populations. And of course, that starts with our primary care providers because, you know, telehealth can do a lot of things, but primary care really needs to still be hands-on. Yeah. Do you think the days of the independent country doctor are gone? It's really tough these days to maintain that sort of um, uh, practice. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so whether it's gone or not, I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I think that it can be part of a, of a bigger uh, kind of practice. Um, I, I think it, I trained as a family physician. I think it's possible to have a family medicine 
uh, practice with a number of physicians where not each and every single uh, clinician does everything, but the clinic as a whole provides lots of service, services. So you could do um, <clears throat> normal obstetrical care. You can do some behavioral health uh, counseling. You can do um, some uh, minor ambulatory kind of uh, surgical uh, procedures. Um, and in um, that way, provide a, a basket of services that is so sorely needed in rural uh, areas. And then with the uh, use of telehealth uh, and consultation with subspecialists at, say, a Carilion or a, a UVA, um, you could um, um, broaden those uh, services even further. Um, those that sort of a primary care practice, I think, is exactly what you need in, a, in in rural areas. So, what do you feel are the biggest barriers to accessing care in rural communities? Um, given what I said about uh, the type of practice that uh, is needed in rural areas, I, my own opinion is that a, a lot of the a uh, problem with providing that kind of a workforce is related to the uh, payment system in medicine. Uh, the payment system in, in clinical medicine is heavily weighted toward uh, rewarding people for doing procedures and um, really high-tech tertiary kind of care. That's where the big uh, bucks get made in clinical medicine. Uh, and then, and, you know, so your um, more primary care oriented uh, specialties um, get short shrift, um, both in terms of the people who are um, educated in that area and then uh, learn to practice in that area, and in terms of the resources that are uh, devoted to that. So I, I think uh, that. Um, uh, we need to change the payment structure and make it more based uh, not on how much you do to somebody, but <laughs> whether or not that person's health and well-being is improved. And if you uh, start looking at um, that as being the main driver for what um, healthcare providers get paid for, it will shift more towards uh, prevention and um, primary care. Mm -hmm. You know, the other financial concern I see in our rural community is there's, of course, the, the payment models um, where we essentially, you know, if you go to the doctor and the doctor treats you, the doctor gets paid as opposed to a more community health uh, payment system. But the other thing that we run into a lot is the whole liability and malpractice issue, especially for uh, obstetrics, labor and delivery services. You know, most of our rural hospitals don't provide labor and delivery services, and that malpractice price tag is a big part of that. Do you see a way for rural providers to be able to handle that sticker shock? Yeah, it, it's a devastating thing for um, obstetricians. Um, the level of malpractice uh, in, everywhere, but particularly for uh, rural practices, um, a roadblock to uh, getting that workforce built up. Um, family physicians, the because they don't deal with any kind of high-risk um, pregnancies, um, 
have a much lower level of um, malpractice, uh, even when doing uh, obstetrics. Um, so that's one thing that could we could do is if we increase the number of family physicians who do uh, uh, deliveries, that, that would be one approach. Uh, there's been in a number of programs around um, uh, midw midwives and uh, utilizing well-trained mid midwives to uh, provide obstetrical services in rural areas. Uh, that's another approach that I think might be helpful. Um, as far as the obstetricians go, I think that, um, again, if we could uh, provide them with support around the malpractice uh, issue, that we could also increase the number of obstetricians who were available uh, in rural areas. Because um, when we there are high-risk pregnancies for which um, um, well-trained specialist obstetrical care is uh, really critical, and um, you need them around for uh, the backup of the people who are doing the normal uh, obstetrics and normal deliveries in case things uh, require surgical intervention. And. So looking beyond the lack of labor delivery services to just the lack of any sort of hospital services, you know, we know that in Virginia in the last few years, the hospital in Patrick closed, hospital in Lee County closed. Is is VDH collecting any data on the impact of the, those hospital closures? We do have some data on that. Uh, not We haven't done specific studies on um the impact of these closures. Uh, I, I think the Office of Rural Health looks at this pretty closely. Um, when, in that in our Office of Licensure and Certification, uh, which um, does a, li uh, a lot of the licensing and, and the um, certificates of public need for um, these facilities, also looks at this. Uh, it, we are the ones who um, provide the data for um, designating a hospital, say, as a critical access hospital and therefore giving them some uh, protections and some um, um, advantages with respect to payment from uh, CMS. So uh, we do have data. Um, this, this, again, would be one of those areas where I, I would love to see some of our academic uh, colleagues uh, take that data and do the sort of analysis that you're talking about. What is the impact of the closing of, you know, the uh, hospitals in rural areas? And thinking more about, you know, what happens when you don't have a hospital. You know, in your video presentation, you promoted what you called an assets-based approach to addressing rural health issues. And you're rather on focusing on what we don't have, focus on what we can do with what we have. Um, and, and that lines up with the VRHA mindset of wanting to focus more on the benefits of rural rather than its drawbacks. Uh, but you know, every grant I write, every interaction I have with an elected official, every time I talk to a, a reporter, it's the lack of services and the lack of other resources that gains attention. You know, we, we pull down a lot of grant funding by pointing out what we don't have. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, do you have thoughts on how rural people and rural programs can communicate what they need without falling back to the old mantra of older, poorer, sicker? If you take the assets approach, 
I, it, it's a, it's about reframing. So, and and it's also about where you're going for uh, resources. I think oftentimes when you're responding to the um, RFP that comes out of a granting agency, the reason why you fall into that um, <clears throat> that that well-worn uh, path of uh, talking about what we lack is because that's the way the RFP is written, right? And you have to address that uh, in order to get the resources that you need for whatever the program is that you're uh, proposing. Um, so I think part of the issue is thinking outside of the normal box for getting resources. So you take an example like... Um, affordable housing. Um, <clears throat> you could write a grant to some funding agency and say that, you know, we have this horrible lack of uh, affordable housing um, and hopefully get some money that way. Or you could go and you could talk to healthcare systems that are required by the IRS to provide um, money to support community uh, needs and community development. Uh, banks are also required by the IRS to do that. Um, you could get, a, so you can get some healthcare systems, banks, uh, philanthropies, uh, community organizations. Um, they're real strong in the rural community. Uh, faith uh, organizations, they're quite strong in the uh, rural communities and get them all together and uh, say with the money uh, that is um, you can uh, pull together those assets you can pull together with those groups you could leverage that to then go to um, uh, a, a larger funding sort of agency to raise a lot of money uh, to then build some um, affordable housing units in a, in a in an area and that, we've seen that done uh in the tight now this isn't a rural example but in the tidewater region um Sentara health system recently but now must be about a year or so ago um decided to put up 100 million dollars uh, to um support the development of of uh, affordable housing uh, and that's, a, you know, you can use that as your foundation and, and then generate a lot more funds to um, uh, do that kind of work. So that that's an asset sort of approach that doesn't say, I mean, you, you, you build upon what you already have in the community and leverage it into more. That would be an approach I, I would suggest. Thank you for that. Well, inevitably, we've got to talk about COVID. <laughs> of course. So. You know, COVID has completely overwhelmed our, our rural hospitals and clinics. So VRJ has transformed into something of a group purchasing entity where I'm trying to source masks and gloves and mm -hmm. thermometers and everything else under the sun. What do you see as the path forward for rural Virginia? Well, you know, initially um, there wasn't uh, a lot of cases um, in rural Virginia. So we had our first case of COVID-19 in Virginia, March 7th. Um, March, April, May, the majority of cases uh, in the state were in Northern Virginia in the big population center there. 
um, it started to trickle down. Um, the slope of that increase started going down uh, into the early summer. And then we saw as we began to reopen things in Virginia, there was a big spike in the eastern region, primarily um, around Virginia Beach and Norfolk around the beaches uh, as people hit uh, the beach areas uh, in, during the uh, midsummer. Um, we had to clamp down there in order to bring that surge uh, under control. Uh, throughout both those um, big increases in um, the incidence of COVID-19, the incidence of, of uh, COVID-19 in rural uh, Virginia, and particularly in southwest Virginia, was, was low and just slowly climbed, slowly climbed. Um, and then uh, this fall, it began to really take off uh, in far southwest Virginia. So today, for example, um, the case incidence of the disease statewide is around 30 cases per 100,000 population, but it's over 70 per 100,000 population in far southwest Virginia. Um, so the the the, uh, and you know that you know the impact of that very well, as you were describing the kind of work that VRHA is doing to um, um, combat the uh, pandemic in rural areas. Um, <clears throat> the uh, health care system, the dominant one there, ballot health system, um, is feeling the strain as well. They still have enough beds, but the workforce is an uh, issue for them with. Um, people who are either ill themselves with COVID-19 or out in quarantine because they've been exposed, that sort of thing. And that uh, greatly impacts their ability to take care of uh, folks who get COVID-19 and wind up in one of their uh, hospitals. We know what works. Um, we know that <clears throat> if people wear uh, masks, um, they um, protect uh, others from uh, getting COVID-19 from them. And there's been increasing evidence that it actually protects you uh, from COVID-19. Um, washing your hands frequently uh, prevents the spread of the uh, virus that causes COVID-19. And staying physically distant from other people also protects you. Uh, the bottom line is indoors with other people without masks, uh, is a high-risk uh, activity, and it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you are in a restaurant, uh, in a um, in a bar area, um, you know, in a gym, uh, or in a house of worship. All of those places where, if you're around lots of people and you're not wearing masks, you're greatly increasing your risk of get, getting COVID-19. Um, so not doing those things is um, how you prevent yourself from getting the disease. Um, the, we've gotten better at treating um, folks who get the disease, uh, and that's been shown in, in the decreased rate of deaths, even though there's unfortunately many people who are still dying. Um, but uh, if you get it, um, we now have a couple of medicines that can be used in the hospital setting that uh, seem to help. 
um, we're, we know more about how to deal with people in the ICU who need treatments. And of course, the light around the corner is the advent of the vaccines. Um, and we'll probably be having one very shortly in the next few days that will become available. Uh, and uh, we'll start our efforts at uh, vaccinating first the healthcare workers and nursing home uh, residents, and then as more vaccine is produced, uh, moving out and getting um, the general population. Um, so uh, I would say right now, the most important thing to do is for all of us to change our behavior, wear our masks, uh, wash our hands, and watch our distance. Uh, in doing those things, we can help um, slow down the spread of the virus. And then over the next um, uh, six months to a year, we'll uh, vaccinate everyone. And that will be the way in which we'll really um, get the pandemic behind us. Looking forward to it. Yes, aren't we all? <laughs> Yeah, and, and the other thing we're all looking forward to is getting those kids back in school, you know, yeah. along with the, the stress for the frontline healthcare providers. COVID has disrupted our entire education system. Yes, I know. And we know that access to good education is a major predictor for good health. Is VDH thinking of doing anything with the Department of Education to address the educational inequities that will likely result from the pandemic? So we're working very closely with them during the um, pandemic, helping to provide uh, guidance around um, how to uh, keep the schools open. So the, the what we've um, argued all along is that um, whether that that the the main driver of whether or not you can keep the schools open is actually what's happening out in the community at large. If you have widespread community transmission of the virus, then what happens is the uh, virus gets into the schools that way, and that's when you wind up with uh, sick children, sick teachers, sick staff um, in the schools. Uh, the same thing with the nursing homes, for example. So when when the majority of our cases were in Northern Virginia, the majority of the outbreaks in the skilled nursing facilities were in Northern Virginia. When it shifted and it was the Eastern region of the state, the uh, majority of cases and widespread community transmission was out in the Eastern region. And that's where the majority of the outbreaks were in the long-term care facilities. And now we're seeing the majority of the outbreaks in long-term care facilities happening in far Southwest and near Southwest uh, Virginia, because that's where we have the widest uh, transmission of the um, virus going on. So my, my point is, is that um, to keep the schools open, we need to really deal with the community transmission. So it's yet another argument for uh, us all changing our behavior and wearing our masks, watching our distance and washing our hands. When we get to the other side of this uh, pandemic, there's a bunch of things we're going to have to do recovery-wise, and one of them is what you just raised, which is uh, really working quite hard at um, getting the schools up and running again, but also dealing with 
the loss that has occurred uh, in the course of the uh, pandemic. The, we have uh, children who um, uh, will be behind uh, and will need, um, I think, more resources put into education to ensure that they can uh, close that gap. Um, and I, I think that's going to be true for on education. I also think it's going to be true for behavioral health. Uh, I, I believe the emotional and psychological distress that people have undergone in the uh, pandemic will um, have lasting effects that uh, behavioral uh, health will have to deal with, um, let alone the economic side of things. You know, there are a lot of people who have been out of work and uh, evictions and um, other things that have occurred that we have to uh, really ramp up the social um, safety net uh, so that people can get protection, get protected. So thinking about the future, if a student is interested in exploring public health as a career, what advice would you give that person? There are a number of um, um, public health programs in the uh, state. Um, most of the uh, universities now have some kind of uh, public health science programs. There's uh, official MPH programs, ma Masters of Public Health at um, uh, uh, a number of universities uh, and colleges in the Commonwealth, they can pursue those. Um, I think that would give them the sort of training that they need to become a public health uh, practitioner. Um, they can um, um, go to their local uh, health department and work with uh, those uh, folks to see what it what the day-to-day -day life is is for people who do public health uh, and get a, a taste of that, uh, see what uh, whether or not it's something they really want to devote themselves to. Um, those would be suggestions I would make. And last question, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? Hmm. That's a tough one. Because you know, there's so many contributing factors that that um, impact health in, in in rural America. I think um, if I had a magic wand, what I would like to see happen is to um, is for there to be economic development in, in rural. Uh, Virginia and rural America in general. People need jobs, good paying jobs. I, I mean, a, at a minimum, a living wage, but uh, hopefully even better than that. <laughs> uh, not, not just getting by, but doing well, a good standard of living. Um, people need that uh, sort of resource to be able to put um, good, nutritious food on the table for their family, uh, a, keep a roof over their head, have transportation, um, be able to, um, a, a thriving economy would provide resources for uh, improving the educational institutions in uh, rural communities. Um, I, at the heart of it, I think that's that's a big issue. I mean, the, the death of coal and 
in uh, far southwest Virginia was was a uh, devastating blow, and um, so I'd I'd love to see that economic development. And every time the issue of economic development in rural communities comes up, I always point out that healthcare is a good paying job mm-hmm. at every level. Mm-hmm. That, that's very true. Healthcare, uh, communication, you were talking about telehealth. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of uh, things can be done with uh, uh, like serve, um, centers for doing that kind of uh, telehealth work or other uh, telecommunications. That's another area. Um, you know, we don't. You don't need any more um, uh, dumps. <laughs> you know, that one burns me up every time I hear about another company wants to open up a huge landfill. And one of the beauties of uh, the rural areas is the uh, countryside itself. And so, let, let's build up the uh, tourist industry and the um, vacation. Uh, uh, kinds of things and not not landfills mm-hmm. and get rural internet so that people can work anywhere yeah, exactly all right well thank you so much dr oliver for joining us for the virginia rural health voice conference and again on this podcast today thank you for having me glad we had this time together that's dr oliver advocating for rural economic development to provide foundational support to improve rural communities. Dr. Oliver was one of the speakers at our recent Rural Health Voice Conference. To view the video presentation that led to this interview, visit vrha.org, select Rural Health Voice Conference under the Events tab, and register for the event. You can choose to just watch Dr. Oliver or all five of our excellent speakers. Dr. Oliver's presentation was sponsored by Anthem Health Keepers. The Rural Health Voice Conference and this podcast are sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health.